Listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name's Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Todd Carmichael, the co-founder and CEO of La Colombe Coffee Roasters. La Colombe was founded as a small cafe in Rittenhouse in 1994, and today features 30 cafes across the country. Todd also invented the canned draft latte, which in only one year was found in 60% of all U.S. stores. In addition to being a coffee whisperer, Todd is also a renowned explorer who's hosted a show on the Travel Channel and holds the world record for the fastest solo trek to the South Pole. And now it's getting to be 100 below, so the sat phones go down, stoves barely working, because you've, you've climbed up to 14,000 feet too. And you're just seeing this thing and you're thinking to yourself, I'm gonna die in view of the pole. In this episode, you'll hear how Todd discovered his love of coffee and of world travel by working at a startup that you've probably heard of. So I found this job dragging grain sacks around in a warehouse. But on the names of these sacks were Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda. And that was a little company that had three cafes. It was 1982 and it was called Starbucks. And in this first episode of a two-part series, you'll hear what it was like to open La Colombe in Rittenhouse in the mid-90s when coffee shops really weren't a thing. Oh, back then it was terrible. I mean, everyone came in with this look like they felt sorry for us. They would go, what do you mean? There's no salads, no chili, there's no soups. They're like, no, we have coffee. All this and more about Todd Carmichael, his record-setting trek of Antarctica, and the beginnings of La Colombe Coffee, right now on Philly Who. I'm your host, Kevin Schmidlin. Stay tuned. Just a heads up, there is a little bit of cursing. Actually, there's a lot of cursing. So, you've been warned. So before Todd Carmichael became a successful CEO, a world-class explorer, and a reality TV star, he was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, not too far away from Seattle. There, he would be introduced to coffee by working for early-stage Starbucks in a warehouse. This time was so impactful for him because it gave him a glimpse of the big, exciting world outside of his home. Until that point, he lived with his single mother who had him at a very young age and raised him without the presence of Todd's father, who Todd wouldn't even meet until years after his birth. I saw him for the very first time when I was about 11 and I saw him on TV. He was on a game show. It was just before passing and it was like bowling for furniture or something. It was the craziest thing. My mom brought me to this little black and white TV I'll always remember. And she pointed at it and I said, hey, that, that man has grandpa's name. And she said, that's your father. And then uh, because of that show, they got in contact again and, and I was able to meet my dad. Uh, and years later, he, you know, he, he took his own life. He, he really suffered from the mind. And it, there, was, um, there was just a turning point where he couldn't come back. Yeah. Did that situation, do you think that situation affected, I guess, your life trajectory at all? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, at 55 and as a father, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about things like that. But, you know, when you look back, you realize, yeah, I mean, it, it, it shapes you into a different person. Uh, you know, first, you know, you, quote unquote, become the man of the house at a very young age. I became a provider for my mother at a very young age. It, it, it required that I be more responsible than people around me. 
Um, it also makes you a person who's always searching for that reference. You know, you're, you're not really sure how these things are done. So you have to discover on your own. So you're always reading and you're always looking for a hero, I guess. Or you're looking for this kind of mosaic that you're creating that would become that father figure. Um, or that man that you want to emulate, right? right? What were the pieces of the mosaic for you? I mean, you know, early in my in my life, it was always heroes like Shackleton and all these men, these mountain climbers were that explorers. Uh, um, I, you know, all the way from you know Champlain all the way through, I admired the bravery and the tenacity and the discipline, the endurance of of explorers. And then came scientists, so I added that, added that, and then. I just added people as I kept coming, and I made this, you know, snowman, if you will, out of uh, pieces and parts of my heroes. Yeah. So, it sounds like your mother was a pretty strong figure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it true that she gave you your love of adventure and exploration? No, I think I'm the, the complete opposite of my mother. Uh, my mother is a very anxious person, actually, and uh, she's never left her hometown. Uh, that's not true because I've, I've forced her to travel with me and a couple times I, I put her on a cruise and I think she loves the idea, but not the act of, um, you know, she, you know, she was born and raised in a completely different environment and a, a different time. Um, she always, she inspired me to go explore my world, but didn't do it herself. Um, you know, she's, she's, she's afraid of the world. And, uh, and I just never was. Yeah. So when you were 15 years old, you, correct me if I'm wrong, ran a marathon and summited Mount Rainier? Yeah, that was a big year for me. I got super grounded for the Rainier thing. Um, <laughs> you got grounded? Yeah, I didn't tell my mom I was doing it. <laughs> oh my gosh. The, uh, and you know, I learned in short order that, you know, at altitude, Clear skies mean you're going to burn your skin. But I never thought that I would have to bring sunblock on a glacier. You know, this was before the internet or and I didn't have access to the climbing books or anything. Um, and I just had the rudimentary gear. And I burned the crap out of my face. There's no way I could talk my way out of that one. The, uh, so mom found out and I got grounded forever. Um, the marathoning was fine. I mean, she supported that. Yeah. Um, the desert trekking, uh, she supported that but she just didn't want me on top of mountains. Gotcha. So that was the line. It was the altitude. It wasn't the, <laughs> the line. Yeah. Well, I just, what it meant was that I, I jumped on a Greyhound bus. I made it down to Paradise Camp. Finally, I hitchhiked to all like boot distance and I set camp for two days and I made friends with some other hikers and uh, they knew the path and well, they were, they were hippies. They were the greatest guys. And I followed them all the way up to the summit and came back down and I was, you know, five or six days late getting home. So you, you tend to get in trouble. Yeah. And there was no cell phones. I was supposed to be, quote unquote, staying at like Tommy's house. Yeah. <laughs> but from the top of that mountain, I could see the rest of my life. I knew exactly what I wanted to do from the top of that mountain. This, this is what I want. What's this? What I want to do is I want to, I want to not stay within the definition of the person that I'm supposed to remain. You know, I'm a poor kid from a shitty town in a part of this, you know, the States that no one cares about. And I didn't want to fucking stay there. And I realized that if you just didn't accept the limitations, you know, there were the people who did things and then the people who don't do things. And, you know, I look across America and, and I can identify with, with, with some of these people are feeling. 
that I, I just didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to stay where I was born. And I didn't want to stay with the definition of who I was. And I was defined as the son of a suicide and you know, a young single mom in a shitty place in America. That's who I was supposed to be the rest of my life. And I realized at that time on that mountain, I wasn't going to fucking be that guy. I wasn't going to be him. So at what point did you discover your love of coffee? Well, you know, first, I guess coffee found me, you know, and then I found coffee. The, you know, when I went to Seattle, I decided when I was 15 that I was going to go to college. And this, it, I know it sounds silly, but this isn't kind of thing that people talked about. That I was an actual right. decision back then. It really was. It was, and it was not one that was really supported by many people. You know, it was in that area of the world, it was like, I know a million PhDs are flipping hamburgers and what are they going to teach you that we can't teach you? And it's a real slight to do that. And it's, it's really going against, against the grain, like, again, like climbing a mountain or running a marathon too young. Um, but I made that decision and there was no way I could afford it. So I knew I needed to do it through athletics. And that's where distance running came in. So finally, University of Washington, Seattle, my, the university I hoped to go to not only let me in, but paid for my school. And, but I didn't have enough money for, you know, the extras. So I needed a job and I couldn't serve food or I couldn't interact with people. I mean, I, I didn't know any, I wasn't qualified to do anything but farm work, right? So I found this job dragging grain sacks around in a warehouse. But on the names of these sacks were Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, Tanzania, Brazil, Colombia, and they were coffee bags. And they, they meant the world to me. It was just like, again, being on that mountain again, I could see even further. I were touching things that were from the world in this big city of Seattle. And that was a little company that had three cafes. It was 1982 and it was called Starbucks. And they gave me my start. I didn't do much more than just drag bags around. And, but when I was going to school, I was studying business. I wrote a business plan. It was, it was about making the next generation coffee company. And I would call it La Colombe. And that's where we are. So it sounds like, so this is kind of surprising to me. It was more that coffee was the ticket to the world than the actual, like the taste and the beverage itself. Right. I mean, it was, I was just, well, see, I, one, this thing I understood was agriculture. I understood seeds and I understood metal mechanics. And I love the intersection of seeds and mechanics that I understand. That's a farm concept. Like how do you apply diesel motors and welded iron to agriculture and create something? But then ultimately it opened this bigger door, which is the long view, which is I, I could see this landscape that included more than just my state, but included more than just my country, that included Africa and Central South America and Asia. So that was the big grabber. And then when you're working something, you realize as you're moving forward that this shit isn't done. There's so much more left here. So there was space for my inventive mind. There was space to say, all right, there's, there's the next generation and I wanna make that next generation. Yeah. Is that where you met your La Colombe co-founder, JP? That's right, yeah, man. We both had fake IDs. You know, I had a huge <laughs> head of hair. And see, when I left my hometown, it was very country Western, you see. And I never really got to hear rock and roll like, not, you know, I heard old school rock and roll, but this new sound, punk, like, you know, like these bands like, you know, that were kind of Queen-esque and like, yeah. And so 
I immediately fell in love with the music scene in Seattle. And I was at a bar, me and JP, I met JP at a bar. It was just, we were waiting for this band called Green River to play. And the Green River then became Pearl Jam. You know, the lead singer died. So this was, this is like bass, guitar and drum and screaming and just insane, like rusty, like undercurrent, underground rock and roll in a bar that the beer came in cans because they didn't trust anyone with glasses, right? <laughs> and this guy comes in with a, a gold shiny vest, like he's kind of like on Sha Na Na, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he orders uh, a champagne at the bar and that was Jean-Philippe. And I said, dude, are you that Jean? I said, are you Jean-Pierre, that, that roaster at Torrefazione Italia? And he goes, yeah, my name is Jean-Philippe. And we became fast, fast friends then. And that was like 1984, 85. 84. Okay, yeah. so, so that's 84, 85. Lachlan's first shop was in 1994 That's in Rittenhouse. Right. So mm. did you spend some time with JP just vibing about coffee or is that when you went and just sort of went on your own and traveled the world? Yeah. So yeah, I spent some time, finished my degree. Uh, I did a little bit of, I, I studied tax law. So I, I needed to do a little bit of that. I did for a big firm, you know, wore the red tie to work and I, you know, I wanted to taste what that world was like. Um, did you not like the taste? I didn't. No, because I knew it wasn't, you know, I knew, see, every farm kid or every kid like me that goes to college, they treat it like a vocational school. You can't, you can't go and just study something because you want to better yourself, uh, which I kind of regret, but, um, you know, you just get set up with this idea that you're going to, you're going to go through this experience and you're going to get one shot to get a job that you can provide for a family. Right. And so I thought tax law, that's really hard. I love doing hard shit. And so, and I did it. And I practiced it, but I didn't like who I was. And I didn't, I knew that there was that world out there, you know, and taking a week holiday for the rest of my life wasn't going to be enough. So I jacked in my job. And a week later, I landed in France. And then four days after that, I was standing in Addis Ababa looking for farms, man. Wow. So you went back to farming? I went to farming, yeah. I spent all my time for the next four and a half, five years doing odd jobs. I lived on a little sailboat in the south of France. So basically I was homeless, right? <laughs> and the, uh, but you know, I was tan and then everyone, you know, didn't treat me like a homeless. And I socked $97,250 away. And I came back to the United States with a suitcase and some traveler's checks looking for my city. Yeah. And you wound up in Philly. I did. Yeah. So you've been said in interviews that you were looking for a city that needed you. That's right. Yeah. That's, the, that's not a canned answer. I mean, there were some other ingredients that you look for and then I think I try to fill in maybe after the fact, but realistically, like, oh, I was looking for a, you know, I don't know, like distribution routes to blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, man, I needed a city and I wanted a city that needed me back. It's just basics. You know, I always return to the basics. Like if it doesn't sound like a human relationship, it's probably not going to work. So I wasn't going to go and fall in love with a city and give a shit about me and didn't need me. So I was looking for one that needed me and Philly did, I think at the time, yeah. What made you think that Philly needed you? Well, at first there were no cafes and- At this point, you know that yeah. you want to start a, co a coffee Oh company. yeah, oh yeah, I've come to start La Cologne. Yeah. I mean, with, that's the name. You've already got the name. You oh yeah. You wrote that up when you were working at Starbucks. I traveled all the way through Italy and we found a roaster there that we, we bought and we found the, the espresso machines, the grinders, the equipment. We knew exactly the business plan. Everything was set. We just needed to find a home now. And um, 
yeah, when I got to Philly, I knew right away, this is it, man. This is it. I, I walked the whole city like a grid all the way up to the numbers, I think to like about, you know, just all, from river to river. Yeah. And um, I said, this is, the, this is it. And the next thing was to convince my French, you know, partner. And I was living in France. He was living in Seattle, which is kind of ironic. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, I know. And he was uh, just, he studied to be a pilot. And he was just months away from becoming a pilot for, I think, Air France. And I told him, you don't want to fly a bus for your, for your life. You don't want to fly a bus. You know, you want to take on the world. And, and um, we'd, uh, we finally got here. I convinced him of everything. I always remember it was on, uh, the, there was the thing that was like where Peacock Alley is. There's this old Irish pub just right on the parkway there. So I said, come on, come on in. So we went in there and we had two black and tans and, uh, by, by each, by the end of the second one, yeah, I go, you ready? And he goes, okay, I'm fucking in. And three weeks later, I was moved here. Wow, so it only took two beers. <laughs> only two beers. We might have been, you know, I'm, I've been bothering him all day long about it, but he saw he saw what I saw, you know. And you got to remember, this is a time, I mean, Rittenhouse, if you walked across Rittenhouse in the dark, people would think that you were like a daredevil. Uh, you know, crack cocaine was prevalent. Uh, homelessness was a problem. The suburbs were afraid of Center City. Uh, Chestnut was just, uh, it was boarded up. Walnut was half boarded up. You know, it was, it wasn't the city it is today, but, but you knew, you look at the bones and you look at the city and you knew, man, this is, we're touch bottom. There's only one way out that we're going to fly out of this thing. So I'm sure that people came up to you as you're opening the shop at, on like 19th Street in your Rittenhouse where nobody is. There's no coffee shops. Mm -mm. And they probably said, what are you doing? Why oh, are yeah. you here? What would you tell them in those days? Oh, back then it was terrible. I mean, everyone came in with this look like they felt sorry for us. Um, like we tried so hard because we did. We built out the cafe ourselves. And, and they looked at us like, oh, it's such a shame because this is going to end in like 90 days. You know, it's 25 years now and it seems yeah. to be doing all right, you know. And, but people were really confused. Like the, the cafe concept hadn't come or it's just a coffee shop, right? They would go, what do you mean? There's no salads, no chili, there's no soups. We're like, no, like no burgers, no like hoagies. We're like, no, we have coffee. And it just hurt their brains. And then they would, everyone had the same questions. I mean, you probably know that in La Colombe cafes, there are no menus, right? Because two months in, I, we had a menu in the original cafe. I just literally during service, I reached up and just ripped it off the wall and threw it into the back room. It was Why? just big because everybody would come up to me and they would look up and I would stare at their throats with them looking up the sign. They would go, so what's a latte? What's a cappuccino? I just, it would take you minutes. Everybody had to go through the whole menu to have to describe what these things were. These people literally didn't know what these were, right? And so when I ripped it down, they would come up and I would say, I don't know what to have. I go, do you want something special? I would say the same thing. And then I'd make a latte or a cappuccino. I go, this is a cappuccino. They drink it and then they would always drink that. I go, do you want something, do you like chocolate? Great, this is a mocha. And I would just make them whatever. One by one teaching Philadelphia about the finer points of coffee. That's it. And man, it didn't take long. Like by four months, there was a line out the door. Wow. And it's been there ever since. Was there a specific moment where you thought, holy crap, this is really, really happening? Yeah, because, all right, so you got to remember, I rented a place at 13th and Lombard for $140. It was a little, I had a little futon and a hot plate. 
And then we had three towers that were the projects. So 13th and Rombard was like a real tough, tough neighborhood, but cheap. And so, and JP, the same thing. Um, so we figured that our break even was like $350. We'd like, we could survive if we could make $350. I mean, really a day. Wow. And we did like 380. So day one, we're like, yeah, fuck, we made it. God, we're going to survive. I was like, and then, you know, now it's that, that takes 20 minutes. You know, it's like, yeah, it's just no like, time. yeah, the, uh, but I knew right then that we'd had something, but I think that any entrepreneur who's worked that hard to get to that place, you have this sense of inevitability. You just think you, there's never any slight atom in you that goes, oh my God. So there's never this elation when you've you've gone over the hump because it's it was written it's what you saw it's what was written yeah it's written it's just there it's all of it's there and so it's it's just like a script you skipped ahead you saw what's going to happen and you read to that point you're not surprised so we never really never really felt that i mean there were surprises later on i'm i'm like today i'm surprised by what by la colombe yeah by me by where it's all yeah just by yeah just by how i've evolved how the company has evolved it's there's there's a point it's like forecasting weather you know there's a point you just can't do it anymore because too many variables and one little butterfly you know and it's 25 years in i i mean i would never have thought well you know you know your esquire magazine's man of the year you've got a world record you had three years of tv uh You've invented the fastest growing beverage in the United States of America. You have 30 cafes, 1,000. There's just fucking no way. It's like, it's like, just, I just, I have four amazing children. I landed the most amazing wife and I, I lived a charmed life. It's just, I, I, I never really thought that it could be this good. Yeah. So six years after the first shop opens, it's 2000. Yeah. You decided to take a trip. Nigigia. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that. So yeah, I'm glad you yeah. took that. But yeah, so this is where you just wanted to jump into an indigenous tribe and yeah, see how they did it. So why? Yeah, like 2000. I mean, I think you recall it was America was in, you know, it was in a tough place. And I personally was in a tough place. Yeah, it's, I, I needed to, I needed to exercise something in me. Yeah, what was the tough place? Yeah, you know, relationships. There was, uh, you know, I had a failed marriage uh, and that was hard on me, I mean, because that's just not how I viewed myself. The, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm slightly crazy myself. I had to learn how to deal with my own insanities. But like legitimately, you know, like, see, if, my mom suffers from the brain too. So there's just a lot. So what I wanted to do is one, I wanted to surf some of the biggest waves in the world, coral waves. I wanted to jack. I want to know what it's like to have like a train car fall on you. You know, it was just, it was just because the shore here is great. And there's, I've surfed smaller waves in Central America, but I wanted to have a beast fall on me, right? And then, and then learn how to ride it. Um, and I wanted to go back in time. You know, like some people, you know, they can find that in meditation or they can find that in reading, but I wanted to go back in time. And so I found this little village uh, in the South Pacific in the middle of freaking nowhere, population 180, uh, maybe 180. Uh, everyone makes their own homes and everyone fishes their own food and there's no kept animals. Uh, there's no roads. You hack through a jungle and 
And uh, I lived there for, I think, three months, right? How did you find this place? First, I found the wave, and then I found ah, the island. Yeah. Okay. The wave's called King Kong, and it's called King Kong for a freaking reason. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. The first time you see it, you're sitting on its shoulder. You just feel like, yeah, it's like, you know that three feet away is like stepping into a jet stream. It's like, oh, my God, the most violent <laughs> beast on the world. And I spent time drifting. Uh, I spent time surfing. And I came back with a clearer idea about where I should take myself and my company. Yeah, yeah so what sort of lessons did you learn while, while living there? Was there any perspective yeah. change that you particularly remember happening? Yeah, I think, you know, I think you realize that the center of your life and the center of your company uh, is people. It's the human, it's the human element. And that helped in creating the company because you, you know, legitimately putting people at the very center. And then you surround that with innovation and curiosity. Um, you always add a, a degree of adventure to it. And then ultimately what you can learn about people who live in nature is that it's also about the planet. And I came back and I would never buy any coffee from that point on. There wasn't shade grown. There was, I mean, it really shifted my thinking about coffee and it re-upped my interest in making sure that people were at the center. Um, I knew always that I would always be an activist CEO. I mean, that's kind of who I am. I'm, I'm a pain in the ass for that reason, but it kind of restoked that engine. And then it also reminds you that you have many lives. Like there was, there was the life, there was, you know, I mean, if you have, let's say a failed marriage or you, you fail at something and you know, that, 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 that's important to you, that you remember that you have multiple lives because by month three, living with, you know, in a sarong, right? And surfing hard, this was a different life now. I couldn't even remember the guy anymore. So it occurred to me that, yeah, you, you have the opportunity to reset the stakes and, and restart anytime you want. And so I did. So the way you applied these lessons when you returned was change your sourcing, right? Yeah, there was just a lot of stuff. You know, it wasn't that I marched back and said, you know, this is uh, what I've decided while away. And, but it, it just, you know, it, it changed my spirit in a way that I started looking at the world a little differently. And it was an important phase. Um, you know, early on in the company, JP and I worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day too, you know, which is not great on relationships. It also taught me how to, continue to be a beast like I am, like I still work like an animal, but how to stop working. Mm. And I needed to learn that because, you know, 15 years old, when I decided I was going to be an all-American distance runner, I was going to go to the University of Washington, I was going to, I had never stopped a day, ever, never stopped. And then those three months, I think it was actually four even, it might've been four months, I was forced to stop I'd fished all the fish, I've surfed all the waves, the tide's out, there's fuck all to do. Guess what? It's just you. Okay, you're going to stop now? Right? And it, it taught me how to stop. Can you remember a particular day or time in that period where you kind of, it kind of struck you and you looked around and said, wow, it's great to stop. <laughs> yeah. Or it's, it's even, because, it, Okay, because it kind of relates to something else. Antarctica is that you can stop, but it doesn't mean you're stopped. There is the moment when you realize, oh my God, I've stopped. And that's, I'm not, 
I'm, I, the engines aren't full speed ahead. Like I can sit on a sofa and read a newspaper and be at full speed. But can you sit on a sofa and be at zero speed? It's a very hard thing when you've been running from things or running at things or your whole life. You know, when I'll jump to another thing, like when everyone asks me, like, how hard was it? The hardest part about walking across Antarctica, let's say you get there and you survive, you live, okay? The hardest part is once you've hit the pole, because for two months, you've been, there's on the ice, 14 hour days, pulling a 300 pound sled uphill. There's a chant in your mind is saying, go, 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 right? Every second, every second is used. And when you touch it, what happens is the voice keeps saying, go, go, but there's nowhere to go. And it go, does that for four or five more months. Even when you're stopped, you're not stopped. So it's that learning how to stop that fucking voice. And right? Yeah. And the Gigia was the very first time the voice stopped. And I was like, oh God, oh shit. And it took maybe a month and a half for it to stop it. Right. Maybe two. Yeah. So let's talk about Antarctica. Okay, yeah. Uh, this was 2008, correct? Yeah, that's right, 2008. So between, so you, you go you go on the journey to Nagigia, and that kicks off a solid decade of excursions, right? Oh, dude. Yeah, <laughs> that's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So I went tracking elephants in, in the deserts of Namibia and tagging them and tracking on foot, like... Uh, both elephants and rhino and uh, then it collaring uh, primates and what else then just then it was deserts for a long time some mountains then Antarctica 100 miles in Antarctica in 2004 400 or so miles in 2007 and the whole shebang in 2008 yeah so all these trips I mean these don't sound like coffee sourcing trips nope so these are just you discovering the world discovering yourself yeah, the, I, I guess I was trying to see what was at the bottom of me, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've always wondered, side note, do you, how do you feel when you hear Philadelphians complain about the weather? Right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm the same, man. If you're not pulling 300 pounds, you know, behind you, really, like, you've got your motor full throttle, it's colder than shit. I, I don't like it. Yeah. I mean, I really don't. The... You know, my wife makes fun of me. I will not get in a swimming pool that's below 90 degrees. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to freezing but cold water. But you hung out in Antarctica and in the hottest deserts in the world. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can deal with 100 below. But, it, it, you know, it, all, it always depends on what you're wearing, but really what your mindset is. Yeah. You know, you're if you're in the everyday Western world, you know, mindset of just a coffee guy, you can't take the cold. You have to transform yourself. That's really interesting. Both physically and mentally be a different human. And once you've made that, then it doesn't matter how cold it is. Do you think that everybody has it in them to do that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone has a beast inside them. And it takes a while for the beast to come out. But when that beast takes over, man, oh my God, it's a thing of beauty. You're just like this little doll that's sitting on it, like, like one of those shelf elves you know that's the real you it's sitting on the shoulder of the beast of the beast and the beast does not take any shit he does not slow down he doesn't care and he can go on and on he has no idea what boredom is he has no idea what ma making a mistake is and you cannot compromise with the guy no way you can't he the beast is the he's a freak of nature 
it's just getting that damn dude back in the box is the hard problem yeah well you know get <laughs> sometimes you can't be the hulk sometimes you got to be bruce banner <laughs> you really do if you if you want to live a normal life and you know not tear through a yeah it's yeah you got to put him back in the box once in a while so you hulked out in our in antarctica in 2008 uh you wound up setting the record. World record, that's right. Well, first dude uh, in history to do it solo and then break the, 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 you know, the team record. Okay, so, so 39 days, 7 hours, 49, 49 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was that a goal on the outset to break the record or was that yeah. an accident? You want to hear the honest truth? Okay, it started out with, I'm going to be the first guy to do it solo. Okay, that was big. That's a big deal because... And most people think that it's irrational to even try because to break trail yourself, all those, all that time is, I mean, you do it two hours, you think you're gonna lose your mind. Uh, it's really a frustrating thing to do. So to do it 14 hours a day for 50 or 60 days is rough. And I was giving an interview and I don't know if you've noticed this about me, but I don't really filter all that much. Cause if you're, <laughs> if you're trying to get at the truth, then sometimes I surprise myself with the truth, right? But sometimes I say, dumb shit, right? Okay. This was one of those cases where I went, I'm going to be the first man to ever cross Antarctica solo by foot. Pause, count to two. And I'm going to break the world record. I just tagged that thing on, right? And I don't know why I said it. Maybe it was like the beast trying to get out. But then once it was said, then I had to do now it. Now you have to. Yeah, you had to do it. Yeah. So did you, did you have a moment where you were like, oh shit, what have I done? Oh yeah, and th that happens a lot. At, at that particular moment, no. I think it was actually Lauren said, why did you throw the world record thing in there? You're a freak. And I was like, I ah, know, I just got it. I got over my skis on that one. I just, and then I started doing the math and then I started doing the calculations for the food. And then, you know, I knew I was physically ready. I just needed some good luck and I had some really bad luck, but then I overcame the bad luck and just squeaked under and it was, it was, I was done. What was the bad luck? Got to hear about that. Well, I mean, the everyone who's ever been across Antarctica goes on two meter long skis. You have to wear skis because if not, you're going to post hole and on two, you're going to die because you're going to fall in the crevasses. There's so many of them. And I did do that eight miles in. It's 700 miles and eight miles in, bam, I lost my skis. So I had to post hole the rest of the way. Now I had work schedule set up for I think my shifts were like either 10 hours a day. It was like yeah, nine or 10 hours a day. So, you know, how, what is it? 692 miles in ski boots. It's hard. So that I had to push that to 14 hours a day to make it happen. And then, you know, you're expelling more energy. Now, remember, you know, you're, you're eating 9,000 calories a day, but you're burning 14. So you're losing about almost two pounds of weight a day. And so it's a race of attrition. So I left at 221 pounds and arrived at 163 pounds. And there's a point where you, you lose so much body mass, you can't keep yourself warm anymore. So it's, you're playing with fire. Like, um, you know, just from that amount of time outside heaving that hard, I frostbit my lungs really badly at about 20 to 25% of my lung capacity left. I left eye frozen. My face was frozen. I mean, just all frostbite. Hands, toes, fingers, thighs. You're just, you, yeah. If 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 I had to be out there another day, I wouldn't have survived. No way. It's just no fucking way. I couldn't have done it. So, the moment you're trekking and you see on the horizon, 
pull. What goes through your mind? Well, man, I tell you what, what happens is you're two days away when you see it. Okay. It's a tiny little freaking speck. It may, if it's clear, because half the time you can't see past your own hands, but I could see the pole and you could see the dome and it's surreal. I didn't believe it. Uh, plus I wear, I wear lenses, but it's so cold. You can't wear lenses because they'll freeze. You get wind and it freeze and they kind of shatter in your eye. So I searched around in my, my sled for a, a camera so I could take a picture and zoom in. I was like, all right, it's <laughs> real. Because it. I was hallucinating really badly by now. I mean, I was just, people were with me. This, you know, the ice was green. It was, I could see my, fa- my grandfather's house and my left field of vision. It's like, it was, you're tweaking because it's sleep deprivation, you're malnourished, you're, you're, you're overextended, overexhausted. You know, it, you, everyone knows you just trip balls. I mean, it's like you're, so I wanted to verify it. I kept looking at yeah. the camera like when I got in the tent, okay, that's it. And then it just seems like it never gets closer for a long time, long, forever. Because now the beast is getting weaker and you're trying to take control, right? You're rationalizing, you're thinking, and the clock's ticking. And there's then, you know, sat, you're, now it's getting to be 100 below. So the sat phones go down, or GPS, everything's going down. Stove's barely working because you've climbed up to 14,000 feet too. And you're just seeing this thing and you're thinking to yourself, I can, I can die. I'm going to die in view of the pole. Then it became just a question of just one foot after the other until finally, bam, I was yeah. there. Yeah. And so you step in, you step in the pole, on the pole. I don't know. What the- <laughs> yeah. You just, yeah. You, there's a, there's actually the a pole. There's a pole there and you, you touch it. Uh, but there were a lot of worries. I knew I was close to, to death, and I knew that usually it's organ failure. Um, it, you know, three or four miles back, I dropped my sled, and I, I developed a really unnatural affinity and friendship with my sled. And I, I know it sounds well, no, it's but I mean, it was the Wilson thing, right? Yeah, you know, when I saw that with my wife, I said because I had done a lot of isolation work, I said that is so fake, that is bullshit, that is not true. You know what? If you if you are if you're out alone. 40 days like before and, and under those conditions yeah it was like leaving my dog and i i got down on my knees and i i called her betty right so and i was like i'm so sorry i'm crying i'm so sorry I'll come back i promise i promise i'm sorry you know it's like i felt terrible so i didn't first want to touch the pole because you didn't have betty i, I needed three thousand calories to get back to her and pull her back in right so this woman came out and brought me in and I was negotiating for some food. That was it. I just needed food. But I was the crazy guy, right? And my face is all duct taped and it was just, so I said, just give me, I, they have this syrup. I could see the syrup because there's the cafeteria. I said, lady, give me that bottle of syrup. I'm out of your hair because I just want to get calories in to go get Betty so I can celebrate. And uh, someone overheard that as she went to go get a manager and she gave me these two giant cookies with frosting. Yeah, her name was Shelby. And I, I cried like a freaking little boy, and I ate him like ger- like a German shepherd. And then I headed back outside. And, and you I, got Betty. I got Betty, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and I fell asleep in a little shed they had because I couldn't. I hadn't slept for a couple of days. And when I woke up, there were lots of people in the shed shaking me. There's blood everywhere. Just, and I was just coughing up all this blood. It's a, you know, I had vessels that were bursting in my lungs, and they brought me in and started giving me you know drugs to bring me back because they they can there's a little 
I kind of not a hospital. What do you call those? It's like a little clinic inside there. Uh, they don't want you in that building. There's just for scientists, right? And and uh, but there was just one condition: is if someone's life were in danger, they'd bring them in. So they they'd anticipated. They thought mine was. And and I were they expecting you? They, I imagine they were expecting you. There was I, the rush. I got this little Russian guy to drop me on the edge of the pole. He he was when he dropped me, he was not sober and. I don't know if he was that reliable, and um, he was supposed to call in and predict the time, but no one thought that I would ever make it, and then no one thought that I would ever break the world record. So they knew that some guy was doing this, but they, would, they wouldn't think I would be there yet. And when you arrive there, they live in like the space station, right? Yeah. Outside is not a place that they go. So when you walk up and you pound on a window, it's as if like an astronaut just floated up to the space station. What? How in the fuck did this guy get here? That it really did blow their minds. Yeah. Yeah. And as soon as I was a little bit rational, it took me a couple of days. If I had to take on a lot of um, IV, a lot of food, where I can think quasi reasonable. They, I spent some time, you know, like, talking to the guys and kind of tell, explaining how I got there. So at that point, it's time to come back. Yeah. Was life different? Yeah, it was harder. It was, okay, a couple things happened. So 10 days from the poll, uh, I talked to my wife on the SATCOM phone and she said, we're going to be parents. And we we uh, were in the process of becoming adoptive parents. And we, um, we, we knew that we wanted more than one child. We knew that we wouldn't want to start with a certain age. Now we got a match. Her name is Yemi. So I knew I'd be a dad. So I had that in my mind. And this was this was 10 days after the poll? No, on, before I got the poll. Oh, so you were out. You were trekking when you I got was the there. News. Yeah, I, there's a sat phone. And at a certain time of the day, this Russian satellite comes over. You can connect into it. You don't have a lot of time. It's like weird time delay, but I got Lauren. Because you're going to be a dad. And I went, holy shit, I better nail this thing. Because there's no way I'm coming back again with, with kids. Hey, guys, we're taking two months off. I'm going to go to the South Pole. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. So there was that. There was... Um, I couldn't stop thinking about what the next thing would be, right? And that was Death Valley. And then I, I just I was having a lot of problems because of, like my I couldn't regulate my, my blood sugar anymore because just of how you eat every you eat every seventy minutes for four months, your body just forgets how to regulate it on meals. So I couldn't sleep completely, and and I was just having loads of nightmares for months because the beast voice just wouldn't stop, you know. Um, so that I had a lot of going, I was really, now I didn't, Yemi came home and it all went away. I mean, when I went to Ethiopia, I got my little girl and I brought her home, all that shit just disappeared. But the next four months were really troubled for me. There's no celebrating. I never enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed doing it. I never got the joy of, of, of doing it, of having done it. Yeah. So, so yeah, was, is having your name in the record books and, you know, sort of, having the stories to tell worth all of that? I think, well, what happened from that is the, you know, all right, I tell you where that kind of came. It's like, one is defying who you are. It's really important for me to defi defy who I am. And that's, you know, from Mount Rainier on, you know, like as a kid and marathoning and ultra marathoning the desert, it's always about not being the person you're defined as. It's pushing beyond that, right? recognizing that I know there's the common way of saying it is that not being satisfied with the box that you're in right breaking those boundaries 
Second thing is, you know, when I was a kid, I worked at this gas station called Big Reds and I would pump gas, right? I was like, this is back in the old days where they don't care how old you are, you know, where I was like 14 pumping gas and I used to have to dip the tanks and you take this long stick, you, you know, you take the cover off the tank and you, you drop it down there until it touches the bottom and you pull it out and you see how much fuel is in that tank. It's called dipping the tanks. Antarctica, the deserts, it's about dipping the tanks. I want to know how deep that fucker is. I want to know how much I got inside. And there's only one way to do it, man. And that's just do it, go. So what I learned from Antarctica is that, yeah, man, I can go a long way. I can really do it. You know, look at, look at La Coloma. All the people who started companies like mine have all sold and flogged off and done. It's 25 years. Fuck it. You want to see how far I can go? This is, I know now. I know that. And when I became a dad, no worries. I can outlast, outstand, outdad, outpush anybody. I know how deep my tanks are, right? And that's, that's the takeaway from it, you know? And if everyone, if that, you know, if the, if the Antarctic conversation went completely away, I wouldn't feel much loss because the real benefit is still, it's just sitting in me. You know, when you approach difficult challenges in your life, you go, well, it's been harder than this before. Knowing that is super important to me. You know, knowing that my boundaries are way further than even, even I expected. So in the day-to-day -day challenges of life, you're just like, well, you know. <laughs> how hard can this be? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not like Warren survived non-Hopkins lymphoma, you know, and at a time you're not supposed to, right? And Lauren, my wife, and you know, we were, we're raising four children who come from very difficult circumstances. So there were really tough challenges in the early parts of that. And, and, you know, we've had these challenges in life. When, when something comes at us, we're like, fuck. You know, it's like, really? Like, if you've got a crack in your app, you know, in your iPhone or something awful happens, we, can, we know we can rally. And Lauren looks over at me and goes, that guy could take that on his back and walk 500 miles in that direction if he has to, right? We know this. And it's important to, to test your wings. Okay, if right now you grew a set of wings and you could fly. Okay. After you got over the shock of that, you're going to probably want to know what they can do. How far can I go? How high? How high? How far? How fast? Yeah. Right. Well, how about your insides? Aren't you interested to know how high, how far and how fast they can go? Well, find something that's regulated and go for it. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have any advice for somebody who's listening and wants to do the test, mm -hmm. but can't find a, a yeah. Russian guy to drop him off in Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that takes so long to organize. You know, it depends whether we know what you're going for. I mean, is it mental? Is it emotional? Is it physical? Is it everything? I like the idea of going outside of areas. I, you know, I, I think that every American should go and climb Mount Rainier one at a time. Got to don't get crowded. This is a big, small mountain. Like right now, twice a year, I get on a plane uh, and I'm there, I get at night, right? So I'm there in the morning, I'm climbing that next morning. I go up that day, down the third, and I'm back here the fourth, a long weekend. And I've been out seeing avalanches. I've been across crevasses. I've picked across fields and just, it is this massive, tiny mountain. And, you know, I take my friends just every day guys never climbed and, I, and I'll get them, we get up there and, you just feel like you've been, you've been away for a month and a half and you've been scared and you've been happy and you've been, you've just hugged like other climbers and you've been, 
you know, emotionally driven, you've been bored, you've been all, you've done all the emotions and you've tested yourself because it's scary, man. You, it's the middle of the night, there's a tiny ladder across the crevasse. You've got these big crampons on gear. You got one little light on your helmet and you've got to walk across this ladder and not kill yourself, right? It's really amazingly cool. And you think, you know what? If I can do this, I can smack out anything in my business or my work, I can. Uh, so that's the way I do it. Coming up on the next episode of Philly Who, Todd and I will discuss Dangerous Grounds, his show on the Travel Channel and how shooting it led to some pretty sticky situations. So we got back in the boat, pushed it out as quiet as we can, and we bought maybe seven, and I'm like, oh, fuck, okay, we're out of here. And then they're lighting bullets up coming across the lake. We'll also hear the story of how the canned draft latte was inspired by his son eating whipped cream out of a can. And I said, okay, first, this is whipped cream. You gotta know this, right? First, never do it like this. Shake it, right? Shake, shake, open your mouth. And I blasted in his mouth some whipped cream and that's all I needed. And we'll talk much more about Philly and how La Colombe wouldn't be worth a billion dollars without that good old brotherly love. I walked in there, I'd like to meet the mayor. I mean, literally, this is how naive I was. And he brought me in. I'll always remember because he had a hoagie, pull it out. And he, he gave me half. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and give us a share on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Tell your friends. Feel free to hit up at PodPhillyWho on Twitter and Instagram with feedback, suggestions, ideas for guests. And of course, you can always find more info at PodPhillyWho.com. Music by Lee Rosevere, podcast artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. See you next week. <laughs>